Romans chapter 7, starting in verse 7, verses 7 through 12. Um, now, um, before I start, <clears throat> as you see, this verse starts off with a question. And it's a question based on everything that Peter said last week, pretty much, and even before. Because um, last week he talked about the law, which is what this section is going to talk about. Um, it didn't sound like the law was a good thing for us. Okay, because when he talked about all the things that, all the problems that it, it could cause in the law. And so, Paul anticipates the next question. Okay, if that's the case with the law, the next question is, what should we say then is the law sin? According to which all I've just read and which, and which you just said, is the law sin? And that's the first question here. What shall we say then is the law sin? And then he says, absolutely not. Paul answers the question. He asks the question, and then he answers it. Absolutely not. Then he says, on the contrary. It's the exact opposite of that. I would, ha- I would not have known sin if it were not for the law. For example, I would not have known what it is to covet if the law had not said, do not covet. And sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, produced in me coveting of every kind. For apart from the law, sin is dead. Once I was alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came, sin sprang to life and I died. The commandment that was meant for life resulted in death for me. For sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, deceived me and through it killed me. So then, the law is holy and the commandment is holy and just and good. Okay, now, he says here, uh, yeah, what should we say then? Is the law sin? Absolutely not. He says, on the contrary, I would not have known sin if it were not for the law. So the law, basically saying the law is not the problem. Our sinful nature is. The law is a mirror. The law is a mirror. The law tells us what is wrong, what is right, and how we are to live. It's a mirror, but it can't fix us. Just like when Chris gives this example all the time, but when you look in the mirror to see your face and, and the mirror shows you what's wrong and you fix it based on what the mirror shows you, but you don't wipe your face with the mirror to, get to clean your face. And the same thing with the law. You don't use the law to get, to get cleansed, and we're gonna see that as we go on. Um, the law is a mirror. The law defines sin. It reveals God's standard, and then we compare ourselves to the standard. The law is God's standard for us. When you look at the Ten Commandments, that is God's standard for all of humankind, okay? Uh, it reveals God's standard. It's based on his holy character. And then we compare ourselves to that. And I ask you, when you compare yourself to the law, how you doing? <laughs> when I compare myself to the law, how am I doing? And obviously the answer is probably not, not very well. So it's, it's like an MRI, like any x-ray. An MRI can expose cancer prematurely. Or any x-ray can ex- expose a problem, but it doesn't fix the problem. You know, and that's what an x-ray does. It shows you where the problem is. When you get an x-ray of whatever part of your body, it shows you what may be broken or possibly where the cancer may be. That's what it does, but it doesn't fix the cancer. All it does is expose it. And that's what the law does. It's like, it's like an x-ray, an MRI. It exposes the problem. So let's look at uh, Galatians 3 to help us understand this better. And the question is, why then was the law given? Another question. Okay, if that's the case, then why was the law given? What's the point of the law? If all it does is expose my filthiness and my dirtiness, then what's the point of the law? Why then was the law? It was added because of transgressions. 
because of transgression, because of our behavior, because of sin, until the seed, singular, to whom the promise was made would come. That's talking about Jesus. The law was given until Jesus would come. The promise was about Jesus until the seed to whom the promise was made would come. The law was put into effect through angels by means of a mediator. Now, a mediator is not for just one person, but God is one. Is the law therefore contrary to God's promises? Again, absolutely not, exclamation point. Don't be silly. Absolutely not. For if the law had been given that, for if a law had been given that was able to give life, then righteousness would certainly be by the law. If there was a law that was given that could give us life, then Jesus would never have to come and die. All we had to do was just live according to the law. But obviously that wasn't the case. For if a law had been given that was able to give life, then righteousness would certainly be by the law. But the scripture has imprisoned everything under sin's power. Listen to that. The law has imprisoned everything under sin's power so that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. Amen. Amen. Verse 23, before this faith came, we were confined under the law. Listen how he defines the law. He said we were confined. It was like a confinement under the law, he says. Before this faith came, imprisoned until the coming faith was revealed. The law was like a prison to us, he says. He said before this faith came, faith in Jesus Christ, we were confined under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith was revealed, until the gospel was revealed. The law then was our guardian until Christ. The law was our guardian. It was, it was our protector. It was our schoolmaster, another translation says, until Christ came. It was our guardian, our tutor. It was like a babysitter. The law then was our guardian until Christ so that we could be justified by faith. See, we couldn't be justified by faith through the law. So the law said, I'm going to hold you until the justifier comes. And then you're going to be justified by faith and I can let you go. Amen. So that the law then was our guardian until Christ so that we could be justified by faith. But since that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. When your parents come home, the babysitter can leave. But since faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. I don't need a tutor anymore because a real teacher is here. For you are all sons of God through faith in Jesus Christ. I love that, those verses. That's, so the law, what was the purpose of the law? That was the purpose of the law, to be our guardian until Christ would come. See, we never see the desperate venom and malignity of sin until we compare it to the law. We don't see how bad sin is until we compare it to the law. Then you compare it to the law, you'd be like, okay, this ain't as innocent as I thought it was. And he says... I would not have known what it is. First of all, I would not have known sin if it were not for the law. He's saying, what is he saying? He said, I would not have known sin if it wasn't for the law. As he's saying he didn't know what sin was, what he's saying is he he didn't know the dreadful nature and power of sin. The soul-destroying character of sin, the principle of sin in the heart. He said, I didn't understand that until the law came. I didn't understand how dangerous sin was until the law came. I didn't understand what God really was saying through the law. I didn't understand what he was saying about loving my neighbor and loving God with all my heart. I didn't understand that until the law came. The principle of the law, the dreadful nature and power of sin, the law reveals that. Romans chapter 3. Now we know that whatever the law says, speak to those who are subject to the law. So the law is talking to everybody who's subject to it. 
and this particularly first and foremost to Jews. We'll leave it in, in the Old Testament for right now with the Jews. He said the law was for them, speak to those who are subject to the law, so that every mouth may be shut and the whole world may be subject to God's judgment. God can shut everybody up just with the law. <laughs> he said, so that every mouth may be shut, everybody, everybody, and the whole world may become subject to God's judgment. For no one will be justified in his sight by the works of the law. Again, the works of the law, you can't be justified by that. Because the knowledge of sin comes through the law. The reason I know sin is by looking at the law. Like I said, Paul said, I would not have known sin if it were not for the law. The knowledge of sin comes through the law. And then he says, uh, for I would not have known what it is to covet if the law had not said, do not covet. I I thought it was okay to just want your stuff. If the law hadn't said, don't want his stuff. <laughs> he says, the law hadn't said, do not covet. I, I didn't know that. The 10th commandment strikes at the very root of, of sin, which is man's sinful heart, his evil desire. See, the law can be seen as, as behavioral rules, quote unquote, easy to keep, especially the last half of the 10 commandments where it says, don't steal, don't commit adultery. Says, I can pretty much, I can, okay, I can keep from doing that stuff. You know, I'm, I'm good with that. It can be seen as just behavioral rules. Covetousness was the last vice Paul expected to be guilty of, and it's the first one to be exposed. Paul said, I'm, not, I'm covetous. That's not, that was the last one he was expected to be guilty of, but it's the first one God exposed to him. Don't covet. Because coveting is something that you can't necessarily see. It's in your heart. So I can want yourself without you knowing it. I can covet your car without you knowing it. I can be secretly in my home <laughs> planning and conniving to steal your car. And you know, know nothing about it. That's a heart issue. Our sinful nature wants to violate laws. Give it a rule, and it wants to break it to assert its own independence. Let me read that again. Our sinful nature wants to violate laws. You want to violate what's wrong. When you see the signs of this, don't do this, you want to go do it. That's our nature. Give it a rule and it wants to break it to assert its own independence. We want to be autonomous. I want to be my own God. You don't, can't tell me what not to do. Who do you think you are? That's, that's, and we see it in our kids. In your kids, you see it in your kids all the time and you hate it. <laughs> It's, it, it, that's just our sinful nature wants to violate laws. We don't like people telling us what to do. I'm, I'm going to say something. Please, this is not about, please understand the point I'm trying to make here. I have no fight in the whole thing about vaccinations and masks. That's not my point. But some people, not you, but some people you know, <laughs> won't get the vaccine just because the government says they should. They just want to just because the government says do it, I ain't doing it just because. Like I said, this ain't a thing about, but that's just our nature sometimes. I, there, was a, there was a guy who had a shirt on, and I forget what the issue was that he was uh, protesting, but the shirt says, just because you told me not to. <laughs> he was just, just because you said not to, I'm going to do it anyway. And that's how we are. Just because, and, and same thing with God, just because God says, thou shalt not. We want to do whatever. I love uh, 
Tim Keller in his commentary on this, I love what he says here. This is so good. Um, he talks about this verse. When it says, first of all, before I read this, let me, let me, let me go to, to the next. Uh, um, I would not have known covet the law I said do not covet. And sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, produced in me coveting of every kind. Sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment. It means that sin used the commandment as a starting point, a base of operations. Your sin looks at the law and says, yeah. It uses it as a starting point, a base of operations to do what it wants. It uses, sin uses the commandment as a base of operations for its attack on the soul. Sin is being personified here in this. It's not a physical entity or substance of, of independence of the mind, but it's the corrupt compassions, inclinations, and desires of the mind. That's what your sinful nature is. And he says, sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, producing me coveting of every kind. When I saw that, I started wanting to covet everything I saw. Sin said, oh, don't covet. Okay, I want that, I want that, I want that. I want your car, I want your house, I want your wife, I want... So coveting of every kind. Paul said, I didn't know that until I written, until the law was revealed to me. Seizing an opportunity. And Tim Keller says, in this verse, he talks about, um, and it says, how does, how does sin do that? It says, the basic answer is that there is a perversity among, about our hearts. Perversity is a desire to do something for no other reason than it is forbidden. That's the only reason you want to do it, because you, you ain't supposed to. It's a joy in wrongdoing for its own sake. Paul's point is that until the command, command against an evil thing comes to us, we may feel very little urge to do it. Before the commandment came, you didn't really want to do that. But when we hear the command, our native perversity is stirred up and we, and we may take over, and may take over rather. This insight is the door to understanding the very anatomy of sin. And he talks about Augustine. Augustine has a classic analysis of this point in Confessions. He describes a time when he stole some pears as a boy and then draws some profound insights from his experience. Listen to this. Near our vineyard, there was a pear tree loaded with fruit. Though the fruit was not particularly attractive, either in color or taste, I and some other youths conceived the idea of shaking the pears off this tree and carrying them away. We set out late at night and stole all the fruit that we could carry. And this was not to feed ourselves. We may have tasted a few, but then we threw the rest to the pigs. Our real pleasure was simply in doing something that was not allowed. I had plenty of better peers of my own. <laughs> I only took those ones in order that I might be a thief. Once I had taken them, I threw them away. And all I tasted in them was my own iniquity, which I enjoyed very much. Wow, you hear that? He said, all I really tasted was my own iniquity, and it tasted good. And there's a scripture, I think, in Proverbs that says, stolen, uh, stolen, stolen fruit is sweet. It tastes better when it's stolen. And he goes on to say, there is always a depth motive for every sin. When a person lies or steals or is impure or cruel, there is always a superficial motive. There is greed or anger and so on. But Augustine's experience of the pear tree and his study of scripture showed him that the underlying ultimate motive of sin is to play God. 
Imagining himself, himself speaking to God, he continues, in a perverse way, all men imitate you who put themselves far from you. What then was it that I loved in that, in that theft of mine? In what way, awkwardly and perversely, did I imitate my Lord? Did I find it pleasant to break your law, unpunished, and so producing a darkened shadow of omnipotence, all-powerful, me? What a sight, a servant running away from his master and following a shadow. Could I enjoy what was forbidden for no other reason except that it was forbidden? That's all I enjoyed about it. I wasn't allowed to have it, and I got it. We have a deep desire to be in charge of the world and of our lives. We want to be, quote-unquote, sovereign. Every law that God lays down is an infringement on our absolute sovereignty. It reminds us that we are not God and and prevents us from being sovereign to live as we wish. In its essence, sin is a force that hates any such infringement. It desires to be God. What was the first temptation from the serpent in the Garden of Eden? You will be like God. That was the essence of the first sin, and it is the essence of ours too. You will be like God. Not even God can tell you what to do in our sinful nature. And sin, seizing the opportunity through the commandment, produced in me coveting of every kind. For apart from the law, sin is dead. Apart from the law, sin is dead. Let me read uh, Ephesians 2. And you were dead in your trespasses and sins, and whence you previously walked according to the ways of this world, according to the ruler who exercises authority over the lower heavens, the spirit now working in the disobedient. He said, you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you previously walked. We all live like that. According to the, law, the ways of this world, according to the ruler who exercises authority over the lower heavens, the spirit now working in the disobedient. We too all previously lived among them in our fleshly desires, carrying out the inclinations of our flesh and thoughts. Not just what we thought about, but what we wanted to do. Our flesh and thoughts. And we were by nature children under wrath as the others were also. The corrupt compassions and inclinations and desires of the mind. He said, we used to live like that, past tense he's talking. We shouldn't anymore. A couple things that the law does. The law provokes sin, self-will, and its autonomous desire. It exasperates the desire for what is forbidden. It always wants what it shouldn't have. It agitates sin in our own nature, and it motivates the flesh to action. The law motivates your flesh to action, to do what the law says don't do. He says, apart from the law, sin is dead. What does he mean by that? It means it's latent. It doesn't mean that it's non-existent. That's not what he's saying. It's existing, yet it's dead. But it gets aroused by the law. It just lays there, and then when the law shows up, it springs up. Confronted by the law, sin takes on the character of rebellion again to demonstrate its autonomy. When it says, when it, when it reads, thou shalt not, your sinful nature wants to go and do that to, 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 uh, to uh, uh, demonstrate its autonomy. And we all want to do that. We all do. We all have done it and seen it in our own selves. Not just your kids. You have too. When your boss says, do this, <laughs> Or the law says, do this. The law says 55. 
in your foot wants to rebel and <laughs> when it says thou shalt not tre- private property don't trespass you want to go and see what are you hiding in there why can't I come in sinful nature it's latent it gets aroused by the law it gets awakened your, fle- your flesh becomes woke <laughs> To, to quote a, a very famous quote term going around and now woke, everybody woke, you know. Your flesh gets woke when it reads the law. <laughs> the more law without the gospel, the more sin. The more law without the gospel, notice what I said. I said without the gospel, the more sin. Unless we allow the law to do its work, we won't look to Christ. Don't miss that. Unless we allow the law to work and do its work, we won't look to Christ. We need the law to convict us of sin. We need the law to tell us how wrong we are. To show us, like I said, that we need a savior. God gave us the law to reveal to us, okay, this is my, God said, this is my standard, and I ain't gonna lower it. So how are you doing? It show you, okay, Lord, I'm done. I'm a wretch. I can't, I can't keep that. And God said, exactly. That's the point. That's the point. To, to show you that you need Jesus. Because I can't, I'm not going to change that. Because you can't meet it. You know, I remember Tony Evans talking about his son <laughs> out in the back when he was a kid playing basketball and, uh, you know, shooting and, and, and missing, you know, and, uh, and, he, and, he, and he brought the, the net down. <laughs> and then he started making all the shots, and he went and got his dad. <laughs> they showed him, look how good I am. He said, you, you, you lowered the standard. You made it easy for you. <laughs> and God's, God doesn't do that. He does something better. Listen, he does something better. He meets the standard himself. He does something better. Rather than have you try to meet it on your own, he meets it himself. And then he says, I'll give that to you. We're going to look at that and see that in a minute. Apart from the law, sin is dead. Um... Uh, like I said, he wasn't ignorant of, he, had, he, did, he wasn't ignorant or had a lack of concern for the law. That's not what he was saying. But his perfect conception of it, its real and essential demands, what it really required. Paul had a certain kind of peace and security, free from conviction of conscience. He had that before the law revealed, was revealed. He was satisfied with the outward mask of righteousness. He was satisfied with that. Because he thought he was doing good. He said, apart from the law, I was alive, he said, I was alive apart from the law. He was a proud Pharisee, Paul was, a Jew. He was proud. Let me, let me, let's look at something. Acts chapter 26. This is Paul. He says, all the Jews know my way of life from my youth, which was spent from the beginning among my own nation and in Jerusalem. He said, they all knew me. They all know my way of life. They know how righteous I was. He said, they all know it. He says, they had previously known me for quite some time. He said, if they are willing to testify that according to the strictest party of our religion, I lived as a Pharisee. He said, I was a Pharisee, a Pharisee. He said, I lived this thing. 
He said, everybody know it. And let's look at Paul's resume. This is Philippians chapter 3. He says, watch out for dogs, watch out for evil workers, watch out for those who mutilate the flesh. For we are the circumcision, the ones who serve by the Spirit of God, boast in Christ Jesus and do not put confidence in the flesh. He said, listen, we are the ones who are are of the circumcision, the ones who serve by the Spirit of God, boast in Christ Jesus, notice what he boasts in, not himself, boast in Christ Jesus, and do not put confidence in the flesh. He said, I don't put no confidence in myself, my fleshly sinful nature, and you shouldn't either. Put no confidence. Your flesh, ain't nothing, he says, in, there's nothing good in my flesh, he says in Romans chapter 7. There's nothing good in our flesh. Your flesh is not saved. <laughs> I say that a lot. Your flesh is not saved. And when it heard that you got saved, it was not happy. Not happy. And do not be confident. Although I once also had confidence in the flesh. He said, I used to boast in my flesh. He said, I had confidence in my flesh at one time. And here's why. If anyone else thinks he has grounds for confidence in the flesh, I have more. If you think you had a reason to boast, listen, you ain't have nothing on me, Paul said. Let me just give you a rundown. Circumcised on the eighth day, just like the law said I was supposed to be. Of the nation of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, where all the kings came from. A Hebrew born of Hebrews, wasn't nobody more Jewish or Hebrew than me. Regarding the law, a Pharisee. Regarding zeal, persecuting the church. Regarding the righteousness that is in the law, blameless, he said. He said, I was blameless. But everything that was a gain to me, I have considered to be a loss because of Christ. More than that, I also consider everything to be a loss in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. He's all of that was a bunch of garbage. Because of him, I have suffered the loss of all things and, and consider them filth so that I may gain Christ and be found in him, listen, not having a righteousness of my own from the law. Don't miss that. Not having a righteousness of my own from the law. Because I used to have that righteousness of my own. I thought anyway, when I boasted in my flesh, from the law. He said, but when Christ came, not having a righteousness of my own from the law, but one that is through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God based on faith. He said, I used to boast in my flesh because I kept the law so well, so I thought. And I boasted in that. But when Christ came, he crushed all of that. He crushed all of that. The death of sin is the life of man, and the life of man is the death of sin. Let me say that again. The death of sin is the life of man. When sin dies, you begin to live. He said, and the life of man is the death of sin. We need to kill sin, Romans 8. The quote, be killing sin or sin will be killing you. Kill sin by the Spirit. Uh, for apart from the law, sin is dead. Okay. Once I was alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came, sin sprang to life and I died. He said, once I was alive apart from the law, and when the commandment came, sin sprang to life and I died. When the commandment came home, when I truly understood it, when I was convicted of sin by the commandment, 
That's basically what he's saying. I was convicted of sin by the commandment. Sin sprang to life, which means it, can, it began to live again. It sprang into activity. It was manifesting the evil inheritness in it. Sin sprang to life. The Greek word is anazo, to live again. It sprang into activity. It manifested the evil inherit in it. He said, and then I died. I was condemned. I was lost because of my failure or inability to keep the law. That killed me. When I realized I couldn't keep the law, I died. He said, I was alive before that came, before the thou shalt not came. I was cool. I was alive. Or so I thought. But when the, when the commandment came, sin sprang to life and I died. The death of my self-assurance, my complacency, the death of my own self-righteousness. We need to die, church. When we read the word of God, whether it's the Ten Commandments or anything, any, any commandment, we need to die to ourselves and say, okay, God, I need to live this. Kill me. When, when Romans 12 talks about a living, a living sacrifice. Uh, don't be conformed to this world but present your body as a living sacrifice. In the Old Testament, the sacrifices were killed. They were dead. They were put on the altar to be killed. And the apostle says, no, 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 I don't want you a dead lover. I want a living sacrifice. I want you to lie, live sacrificially for me, Jesus says. It's like being on the, on, the, on the altar alive, on the operating table alive and allowing God to perform surgery. He said, I want you dead. Just lay there while I do my work, do my job. And the thing, see, the thing is, when we're on the altar, we're, we're squirming and we're, because we don't want, you know, when God starts working, we get, you know, be still and allow God to kill you so that you may live. <laughs> Make sense? Amen? Living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God. All right, uh, the commandment that was meant for life resulted in death for me. The commandment that was meant for life. The law was intended to bring life. The law was never meant to kill. It was intended to bring life. It was to direct and regulate the path of righteousness. That was the purpose of the law. He said the law that was meant for life brought death for me. Let's look at some Old Testament here. Leviticus chapter 18, verse 5. Keep my statutes and ordinances. A person will live if he does them. I'm Yahweh. See, the law was meant to live. He said, you live by my law, you'll live. Deuteronomy 4.1. Now, Israel, listen to the statutes and ordinances, the law I am teaching you to follow so that you may, what, live. Enter and take possession of the land Yahweh, the God of your fathers, is giving you. So, so what's he saying? To live means to enjoy life under God's pleasure. If you obey the law, you would enjoy life under God's pleasure. If you were, if, if you were to obey the law, the Old Testament in particular. But Paul says, it was death for me. See, it was meant to cause them to live. But he said, the commandment that was meant for life brought death for me. The commandment that was meant for life resulted in death for me. Again, for, for sin, seizing an opportunity. Let, hold up, before I go there, let's look at, uh, yeah, Romans, is that what I want? Yeah, Romans chapter 7. 
For when we were in the flesh, the sinful passions operated through the law in every part of us and bore fruit for death. See, he said, when, when we were in the flesh, before we started walking in the spirit, he said, the sinful passions that I was talking about earlier operated how? Through the law. Your sinful passions operate through the law in every part of us and bore fruit for what? Death. The law that was meant for life brought death. But now we have been released from the law. Listen to what he's saying. He said, now we've been released from the law since we have died to what held us. The law held us. He said, but we've, we've died to that now so that we may serve in the new way of the spirit and not in the old letter of the law. <laughs> we were in, when we were in the flesh, the sinful passions operated through the law in every part of us. Every, he says every part of us. And bore fruit. Notice <laughs> that it bore fruit. But what kind of fruit? Fruit for death. Jesus wants us to bring fruit for life for him, but the law brings fruit for death. But now we have been released from the law since we have died to what held us so that we may serve in the new way of life, new way of the spirit and honor the letter of the law. All right. Uh, 2 Corinthians, another one. Let me, let, let's look at 2 Corinthians chapter 3. For we have this kind of confidence. He's talking about we're still on the law thing. We have this kind of confidence toward God through Christ. It is not that we are competent in ourselves to consider anything as coming from ourselves. We ain't nobody. But our confidence is from God. Notice where confidence comes from. It's from God. He has made us competent to be ministers of a new covenant. He made us competent. I wasn't on my own. He made us competent to be ministers of a new covenant. Look, not of the letter, not of the law, but of the Spirit. For the letter kills. The law kills, y'all. But the Spirit produces life. See, the law produced death. Remember, back, it produced fruit for death. But the Spirit produces life. He says, for he has made us competent to be ministers of a new covenant, not of the letter, but of the Spirit. For the letter kills, but the law produces life. Now, if the ministry of death, stop. He says the law was a ministry of death. For if the ministry of death chiseled in letters on stones, the Ten Commandments, if that came with glory so that the Israelites were not able to look directly at Moses' face because of the glory from his face. Remember that from the Ten Commandments, the movie? <laughs> when he came down from the mountain, his face was shining, and the Israelites couldn't look at him. And that was just from the law, from the Ten Commandments. And that was a, a ministry of death, he says. But he said, but if that came with glory, so that the Israelites were not able to look directly at Moses' face because of the glory from his face, a fading glory, notice it was a fading glory, how, much, how will the ministry of the Spirit not be more glorious? If the law was glorious, how, what about the Spirit, the law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus? Yes. How will the ministry of the Spirit not be more glorious? Question. For if the ministry of condemnation had glory, the law was the ministry of condemnation. He called it the ministry of condemnation. The law. For if the ministry of condemnation had glory, the ministry of righteousness overflows with even more glory. Overflows. It spills over, y'all. With more glory. 
In fact, what had been glorious is not glorious now by comparison. I love this. Listen to this. He said, what had been glorious is not glorious now by comparison. Why? Because of the glory that surpasses it. The glory that the gospel brings surpasses the glory of the law. For if what was fading away was glorious, the law, what endures will be even more glorious. God is so good. God made it so plain to us. <laughs> the ministry of death, he called the law. He said, but it's the ministry of life is more glorious. Okay, all right. The law arouses sin. The more the law that is registered in our own uh, conscious, the, the more sin is awakened. The law has no restraint, restraining or redeem, remedial effect. The law has no restraining or remedial effect. It doesn't, it doesn't remedy anything. Paul expected the law to bring him life, but instead it brought him death. And he didn't realize that until the law, until sin sprang up through the law. He says, I'm done. When the law came to life, he said, when he looked at it, he said, I'm done. I'm done. Oh, wretched man that I am. Uh, the commandment that was meant for life resulted in me for death. For sin, seizing an opportunity to the commandment, again, using the commandment as a base of operations, deceived me and through it killed me. The sin drew me aside. It seduced me. It led me away from the right path through the commandment. Paul's sinful nature promised him impunity or freedom from consequences. His nature said, oh, you're good. You ain't going to be no. You, 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 you're good. His sinful nature promised him freedom from consequences. Like, 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 like Satan told Eve, um, you will not surely die. And King James says, you will, you, you will, you will not surely die. She, she told the devil, God said, we will surely die. And Satan says, you will not surely die. Freedom from consequences. If you do this, ain't nothing going to happen to Eve. You're good. You will not surely die. See, our sinfulness, see, we could be deceived by our sinfulness. If you do this, ain't nothing going to happen. It's just one little sin. Ain't nothing going to happen. What's going to happen if you do this? You will not surely die. The wages of sin is death. You will not surely die. Surely God understands that you're just a teenager and you just want to have Surely God understands that, you know, you got needs that need to be met. Surely the devil starts surely in you. Surely you won't die. Deception, Romans, I mean, uh, Hebrews chapter 11 talks about the, the deceitfulness of sin, and we've all been fooled by it. You will not surely die. Sin kills, no matter how small it is, it kills. Uh, we need to understand the distinction between the nature of the law and our own sinfulness. Is a distinct, we need to understand that distinction between the nature of the law and our own sinfulness. The law is good, but sin hijacks it and uses it to bring us death. Sin hijacks the law and uses it to kill us. But look at here, look at here. Verse 12, so then, after all of this, so then, he says, I'm going to sum this up, Paul says, the law is holy, the law and the commandment is holy, and it's just and good. He says, the law is holy. The whole thing is holy. He said, and the commandment, one of the laws in the commandment is holy, and it's just and it's good. 
So is the law sin? Absolutely not. The law is holy. The commandment is holy and it's just and it's good. Again, the problem is not the law. The problem is us, our sinful nature. He says, he says the law is holy, which means it's regarded with highest honor. It demands of us purity and consecration. It reflects the purity and transcendence of God. That's what holiness is, transcendence of God. It says it's regarded with the highest honor, the law. It demands of us purity and consecration. The law demands us to be holy. We don't hear that word much in church anymore. We are to be holy because God is holy, the Bible says, 1 Peter chapter 1. It reflects the purity and transcendence of God. The law is holy, but it think it can't make us holy. The law is holy. It is good, but it can't make me holy. It can't make me good. You have to get that difference. The problem is not the law. The problem is I ain't holy and don't want to be. <laughs> and don't want to be in my sinful nature. He said it's just, which means there's no unrighteousness, um, no, unri- it's no unrighteousness um, laid to its charge. The law cannot be charged with being unjust. Nobody can look at the law and say, God, that's not fair, that's not just. There's no unrighteousness laid to its charge. It reflects the equity of God, and it demands the same of us. It shows the fairness of God and it demands us to be fair too with each other. When you look at the Old Testament laws, God always had to tell the, the children of Israel how to treat each other. Always. He did that a lot, how to treat each other. When he talks about the fast in Isaiah 50, 58, he talks about how they treated each other. Relationships in the Bible was so important, so key. How, did they, how they treated each other. And the law was helped them to do that because it was just. There was nothing unfair about it. It was holy, it was just, and it's good. It means it's pure and free from every fault. Pure and free from every fault. It promotes man's highest well-being, the law does. It reflects the goodness of God. It's pure and free from every fault. It promotes man's highest well-being. When you look at the law, that promotes... When you look at what it says, how we ought to treat each other, the society will be perfect if we, if we obeyed all of that. We wouldn't have... We wouldn't, we'd, be, we'd be fine. We wouldn't have all the issues we got now if we obeyed God's law. Because the first, first seven are all relational. It promotes man's highest well-being. It reflects the goodness of God. It shows you how good God is. When you read the Ten Commandments, you say, God is good. If he, this is what he requires. of he's, that's, he's good. And the Bible co-signs this. Psalm 19, the instruction of the Lord is perfect. You can change that to law. The law of the Lord is perfect. Some translations, the law of the Lord is perfect. Renewing one's life. The testimony of the Lord is trustworthy, making the inexperienced wise. Look at all, this is all the things that the law does. The precepts of the Lord are right. God ain't never wrong, ever wrong. The precepts of the Lord are right, making the heart glad. <laughs> it makes you glad. The commandment of the Lord is radiant, making the eyes light up. Listen to the language he's using. The fear of the Lord is pure, enduring forever. The ordinances of the Lord are reliable and altogether righteous. You can trust on them. You can trust it. Reliable. You can depend on it. 
They are more desirable than gold. You ought to want God's law more than money, more than gold. He said they are more desirable than gold, than an abundance of pure gold and sweeter than honey, which comes from the honeycomb. In addition, your servant is warned by them. Whoa. The law will warn you. The law will protect you. There is great reward in keeping them. You'll be blessed. God will reward you if you obey his law. So it's holy. It's just. It's good. It just can't make us holy, just, and good. So is the law sin? Absolutely not. Is the law sin? Absolutely not. On the contrary, I would not have known sin if it were not for the law. The law is not sin. The law shows us who we are, and it also shows us who God is. So as we, as we prepare for communion, I'm going to come back. We're going to sing a song, and then come back, and I'll talk a little bit more about what Jesus did through his flesh, through becoming like one of us, a human being. And see, the remedy that God gave for us for not being able to keep the law ourselves, God fixed it, y'all. He didn't leave us hanging. And I'm going to talk about that in a minute. The Bible says in Romans chapter 8, one of my favorite chapters and verses in the Bible, there is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus, who walk not after the flesh, but after the spirit. For what the law could not do, the law we just talked about, for what the law could not do in that it was weak through the flesh, our flesh couldn't do it, in that it was weak through the flesh, God did by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin as a sin offering. What did he do? He condemned sin in the flesh. The law was uh, a condemnation, uh, Paul called it, but he condemned sin in the flesh, becoming one of us, the incarnation. He condemned sin in the flesh as a man so that the righteous requirement of the law, notice that the requirement of the law still applies. The right is still, still required. So that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us, who walk not after the flesh, but after the spirit. He condemned sin in the flesh as a man so that I could obey God's command. He did it in my place, and God applies that to me. He condemned sin in the flesh so that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not after the flesh. We don't walk according to the flesh anymore. Galatians 6, or Galatians 5, but according to the Spirit. So we celebrate the victory that Jesus gave us by becoming one of us, keeping the law for us, and dying for us. And we celebrate that as we take this communion today. I don't have to try to be perfect. I don't have to try to be perfect and keep the law. It was kept on my behalf. I do, I live holy, I live righteous, but because I'm not perfect, I'm not condemned. There is therefore now no condemnation to those of us who walk after the, not after the flesh, but after the spirit. So Lord, we thank you for Jesus. Keeping the law that we could not keep, dying a death that we could not die, living a life that we could not live. Thank you for loving us enough 
to not lower the standard, but to meet it for us. God, Lord, you could have killed us and you would have had every right to do it. But instead of that, Lord, you became one of us and met your own standard and then imputed that righteousness to us. And for that, we say thank you. And we celebrate that today as we take of this symbol of the broken body and the shed blood of our Savior, Jesus Christ. Let us partake. Father, again, we thank you. We bless you, we love you, we glorify you. Thank you for your word. We can never get enough of your word, Lord. It is our lifeline, a lamp unto our feet and a light unto our path. Thank you for loving us to take the time to write it down. Now, Lord, as we leave this place, whenever your presence, give us traveling mercies, protect us, bring us back at the appointed time next week. We'll give you glory, honor, and praise. In Jesus' name we pray, amen, amen. Thank you, love you all.